Good morning. I'll be reading from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go to the law and the word of the Lord, shall, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Thank you for reading, Matt. I appreciate it. I hope you keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 2. At any given moment, when you are, like if you use the analogy when you're trying to find a map and it says you are here. So whenever you find yourself in a particular spot, you are here. There's some different perspectives that can help you get a view of what might come next and what you should do. So one of those perspectives that can be helpful is by taking a look at the past. So you can look at the past and we're shaped by a lot of things in our past and you can look at the past and that can be helpful. You can remember when you were maybe at a better place in life. You can remember when you were at a place where things were better, things were, were right and, and you look forward to that. Maybe you have a person saying, we can get back there. Let's, let's keep pushing you to get back there. You need to get back to where you were. So the past is helpful, even as you're assessing where you are and what comes next. There's another perspective that could be very, very helpful to us, and that is the future. There are times where we need to take a look at the future, a vision of the future, something out in the future that could happen and something that is compelling you. Don't you, don't you want to see that happen? And maybe there's something better. Wouldn't you like to be in a better place? And the idea, uh, a compelling vision of the future drives you. Like, let, let me walk in that direction. Let me make some short-term sacrifices, some long-term decisions so that, so that I can get there, this vision of the future. We've chosen to spend a, a few weeks in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah has a lot to say about the future, a future vision. Kind of letting that shape our, our current decisions. We are here, but if we look to the future, there, there are some ways that that will speak to us. As a matter of fact, that's what Isaiah 2 is all about. And over the next few weeks, I want us to get a real clear vision of the future. And I think that'll deeply shape how we live and who we are. Isaiah 2.1 introduces another vision that Isaiah had. And by vision, I mean this supernatural revelation that he didn't just make up, that God gave him. And it's one in which he sees the future and like most of the writings of this time that were prophetic writings, the, the writings of the prophets, this comes with lots of, lots of images and symbols. And sometimes those are hard to determine exactly what do they mean, but then other times they're, they're not quite as hard. They're a little bit easier to decipher. I think this one will be able to understand exactly what Isaiah is talking about in this vision. And, and, and 
Truly, it is a towering vision. That's one thing I I want us to see here, this towering vision that Isaiah has. And by towering, I mean he sees in verse 2 that the highest of mountains, it's the mountain of the house of the Lord. That's what he is seeing. That's what he's communicating to the people of God. He sees this mountain that is just towering. It's established above every other mountain. I think the Jews could appreciate this towering vision, this mountain that is above every other's because they would think of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and they would, but this is something that is even rising above that. It's a, a towering, a towering vision of this mountain of the Lord where the house of the Lord is present. The place where you meet God in his house. Maybe you've been to a high mountain and you've looked around and you, so you might have some of the perspective that Isaiah wants us to have here. And this supreme towering mountain that is above everything else. In the second verse, the second part of the second verse, it says there are nations and then there are peoples. So different nationalities, different ethnicities that are going up to this mountain where the house of the Lord is. The picture is they are flowing up. So this is something that is messing with our our understanding because it's saying there is a stream, but it's a stream of people. And it's not just one nation or one ethnicity. It is multinational stream going up. The stream is flowing uphill. And it's a stream of people going up to the house of the Lord. They're saying we want to go to the one true God. We want to be where God is. We want to go to his house. We want to be with him. It would be almost like the picture of people going up to a festival or a feast in Jerusalem saying, we want to be with God. It's this picture that Isaiah is wanting, like early on in this book of 66 chapters, he's wanting this vision for us to get this in our mind of a towering mountain. It says when we get to the, when we get to the mountain, God will teach us his ways. The result of that will be our lives and our lifestyle will be pleasing to him. We won't have that guilt. We won't have that shame. Our lives will be pleasing to him. There are people in our lives where when they teach us their ways, it's so beneficial. When we listen to them, when they give us advice, we say, when you talk and I listen, it keeps me from a thousand foolish mistakes and leads me in the right path. So I'm so thankful for your wisdom in my life. And we say that to human beings, but Imagine that times a million and that is the Lord teaching us his ways, saying this is the path you ought to go. Don't walk there, don't walk there, but this is the path. This is the right path. This is the path that's safe where you won't be destroyed, where your life won't amount to nothing. Walk in this path. So that's the picture that Isaiah is giving us. What could be better? We go up to the mountain and we have access to God's law. And I think as the word says, I think in verse two or verse three, the word law I think is... uh, It's an adequate translation, but I don't think it's the best one. Because this law is, the Hebrew word is Torah. It means not just like the legal code, but it means instruction or teaching. And some translations reflect that. But it's teaching and instruction from God who loves us, who's made a covenant with us. And by covenant, I mean he has made a binding agreement with his people. And out of that, he teaches us and he gives us instruction. So when we say we're going to learn his law, it doesn't mean section three, article four, precept. It means that he is telling us out of his love, here's how you live in this world that I've made. And he always wants what's best for us. This is amazing. He gives us his word, which is so, so critical because humans don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So this is God speaking to us. And verse four is like icing on the cake. 
Because in this vision of God being high and lifted up and us going to his house and him teaching us and us listening instead of rebelling, we get this picture that he, he sits and he judges the world in its perfect judgment, its perfect justice. Everything is right. Nations don't rise against nations anymore. So all the horrible things that just grieve our hearts, the school shootings, the the, the work of terrorists, these things that just really, really mess with us and are so harmful to our world. It's like this is, this is something different. As a matter of fact, it says that the, instead of swords, they're beating the swords into plowshares. There's no, no, need to, no need for the police. We know we need it now. We know we need military now. We know we need deterrence now. We know we need a justice system that, that, that tries to get it right most of We know we need those things now. What about the day when that's not needed because God is ruling in justice? Isn't that, isn't that the vision that we want? Isn't that what we long for? And that's why verse 5 could say, come, let us walk in that light. Let's walk in that light. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. This is the vision of Isaiah, towering mountain of the Lord, God high over everyone. And imagine this, everyone trusting, everyone listening, everyone obeying, everyone flourishing, streaming up into the presence of God. Reminds me of what God says about his creation in Genesis 1. This is very good. This is exactly, this is exactly what God has in mind, this vision of the future, but the towering vision is not here. It's not a current reality with where the people of Israel were living at the time. They aren't there. As a matter of fact, they are headed in a different direction. So while we have this beautiful towering vision of, oh, won't it be amazing to be with the Lord? The people of Israel, as Isaiah writes this, are headed in a very different direction. They actually, because of their decisions and because of their rebellion, they've been rejected by God. And where they currently stand, they're, they're headed in the opposite way. Why did this happen? There is a vision of the future that seems so amazing, but the present seems like such a struggle for the people of Isaiah. What happened? What stands between them and, and going in the direction that God has for them? What has gotten off track? What's wrong? I think one of the key words that you understand as you begin reading deeper into this chapter, especially the next few verses, is the word filled or full. So if you have your Bibles open, look at, look at this in verse 6 and in verse 7 and verse 8. They're filling themselves up. They're building themselves up. They're getting fuller and fuller and bigger and bigger in many ways. They're setting themselves up against God. The picture Isaiah has painted is becoming like they're so full of themselves. Listen to it. It says, for you have rejected your people. This is God has rejected his people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east. And of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They're filled with things. It's much like the story of the Tower of Babel. They're filled with these things. They've constructed their lives and they're trying to build something high and full. Keep reading though. Keep reading. They're shaking hands. They're striking hands with foreigners, meaning they're making all these alliances. And they think if we make this alliance, then we'll be secure as a nation, as a people. If we make this alliance and they're shaking hands, making those agreements. But then it says in verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold. So don't think like economically this is a hard time. Not, not right then. Isaiah is saying the land is filled with silver and gold. 
things that can provide comfort and pleasure and status, but that's not always an indicator. Just because my bank account says something, it doesn't necessarily mean an indicator that everything's okay. Because not only are you filled with silver and gold, but you're filled with horses. There's no end to the chariots that you have. The horses and chariots, like that's an army that can protect you and fortify you and defend you in those days. Make you feel really secure. And in the end, he says in verse 8, you know what you're filled with? You're filled with idols. You're bowing down to the work of your own hands, to what your own fingers have made. When I read these pictures of what Isaiah is describing, the opposite direction of where they should be headed, not up the mountain to meet with the Lord, but full of idols, trusting in silver and gold, trusting in horses and chariots, looking for some fortune teller to give them guidance, I think, and the alarm bells start going off in my heart because the fact is a, a, regular, a regular part of my week is not counseling people who are seeking Philistine help. Like no, nobody's come into my office saying, I've, been, I've gone to this Philistine fortune teller and she's had some interesting things to tell me. No one says that to me. I've not heard that. But what I do find my own heart prone to, what I do have many conversations about, is this guidance that somehow writes the Lord out of it or certainly doesn't keep him primary. And then we try to, try to figure out, okay, what's right? What's wrong? What's desirable? What's my destiny? What, how should I be living my life? How do I get to where I want to get? And we take like everybody's advice other than like really seeking the Lord on it. I think I'm not so far from Isaiah 2 as I thought I might be. Or, or we have silver and gold and we, we begin to get comfortable with the money we have and we live in like the richest world with the richest economy and yet we, we still think we don't have enough and we get greedy and we think we need more of it. If I just had it, I'd have peace of mind and I'd have a little comfort and I'd get some escape and I'd find some more pleasure. And the last thing on our mind, the last thing on our mind at times is, oh, God cares about my money and how I spend it. Not even just 10%, but 100% he cares about. I hadn't thought about it. Maybe we're like these Israelites and that we trust, we feel secure, and maybe it's not the horse and chariot in your driveway or in your garage that says, see, I'm secure. But maybe it's what you have acquired, what you've built, the retirement, the health, it's where you live. And you bank your hope on things. It may not be a military. It, it may just be the approval of someone that you think is really, really important. And when you have their approval, it's like everything's great in life. I'm okay. I can put my head on a pillow and sleep at night because I know I know they approve of me. Isaiah uses this word idol. It's an idol. The word is basically an, a non-God, an un-God. If we were to just kind of say it as basically as it is, it's things that we have made. It, oh yeah, it could be tangible like a statue, but it, it could be many intangible things that, that we made or we've made enough money to have, or we've given enough of ourselves to have, and we invest this thing, this something with meaning, and it means much more than it should have meant. We take pride in it. We, we think, I made this, and therefore I'm valuable, and I, I have worth, I have a purpose, I have significance, I have control. This tells me I am worth something, and we hold on to it at all costs, and we know it's become way too important because the moment someone tries to pry it out of our hands, we, we become so intense. It's like my world is falling apart. If you take that, I... I don't know that it would even be worth living. And here's the deceptive thing. We think we can have our idol 
and worship God too. It's almost like God plus, and we would never word it that way. But in our hearts, we think we can pursue this thing that gives us meaning and say, yeah, my faith is very important to me. Being a Christian is a very central part of my life. And we think we can have it both ways. And in the midst of this, Isaiah says, your land is full of idols and you've built this thing up. There was this towering vision of the Lord being supreme, taking first place, listening to his every word, hanging on his every word, walking in his light. And in that moment, we would be filled with him, but instead we're filled with a thousand other things. We've constructed this thing and it towers over our life. It means everything to us. And all of that heads somewhere. And where it heads is an inescapable collision where all this is heading when we have this one mountain of the Lord and this tower that we've made, it is heading toward an inescapable collision. And here's the collision. God gives us this beautiful invitation to come to the mountain, which is the highest, to learn, to walk in his ways. And instead, we built our own, kind of our own fortress, our own mountain, and we look to this towering accomplishment. And our pride brings us into collision with our maker. Our pride brings us into collision with our maker. And the result of that, not nine times out of 10, but 10 times out of 10, is what verse nine says, man will be humbled and brought low. When that collision happens, man will be humbled and brought low. So I was reading this verse earlier this week and, and meditating and studying. And then after, after my time of study in the morning, I went for a run and I like running, but better, probably better said, I like to have run. So it's not necessarily the process of running, I like to have run. And so I was out for a run in White Clay Creek State Park and I wasn't sprinting, but I was going at a, a pretty good clip for me, I must say. And I went to run over a bridge and several bridges in, in White Clay Creek. And so my watch, which kind of gauges every every mile, it, it buzzed. And so I kind of wanted to see my pace for my mile. And so I looked down and just at that moment, I'm, I was not looking at what was ahead of me. And there was this little piece of concrete right before the bridge, which I did not see because I was momentarily distracted. And I hit that piece of concrete with my foot. And I'd like to say, I just kept on moving, but that is not what happened. I moved for just a little bit longer. And then let me just say, it's not that pretty to see a 42 year old go spread eagle, <laughs> like face first. And fortunately, like I landed on my wrist, which kind of broke my fall, uh, then hit my knee and my knee hurts and I can't get any sympathy out of my kids out of this. But uh, I, my gut instinct, it was like, this is just total wipeout. My gut instinct was to do, I think what every self-respecting human would do especially guy, and that is jump up as quick as I could and look around. Did anyone see this? Did anyone see this? And I didn't hear anybody laughing. They may have been kind. I didn't see anybody. I, and I did a, like a full 360, like who just saw this moment of glory for me. And, and frankly, it, it made my head spin for a few minutes. I mean, it really shook me out because I thought, man, just like that, 
just like that, I was moving. And just like that, I was brought low. And the next little bit of my jog, I had to, I was not running anymore, I was jogging. But the next little bit of my jog, I thought, Lord, I, I didn't need you to illustrate this so well in my life, this passage I'm preaching. But it was so clear to me in a moment how we can be brought low when we least expected it. When we can wipe out totally this little piece of concrete tripped me up and I, I couldn't help but reflect on how fragile some things are. I can look back now and mostly smile about this even though my knee still hurts. I can mostly smile. But I want you to hear where Isaiah goes. There's not a lot of smiles in the rest of this chapter. Because verse 10 begins to unpack a subject that actually gets really uncomfortable these days in 2019, and that's the fear of the Lord, the, the terror of the Lord. Because He is this almighty God. And when we assert ourselves over Him, what, how, do, how do we think that's going to go? Look at verse 11. It says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And notice, and the Lord alone, alone, that's an important word there. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that's proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Only one is exalted on that day. Do we realize that? There's only one towering mountain, and it's not my mountain, and it's not your mountain. It's not this thing I've constructed. It's not this world I've dreamed up. It is one mountain that towers high above everything else, and that's the Lord's. And everything else gets brought low. The description keeps going. He, God begins to call out, and I, I notice this pattern in this chapter where it's like things that are high and things that are made low. So it's this picture of things in nature. So verse 13 and 14, he talks about cedar trees that are high and oaks that are big and strong and, and mountains and hills. And like people want to say, look what I possess. And God wants to say, really? You possess that? You think you own that tree? You made that? You made that mountain? Or we begin to look at things that we've made, high towers or walls in verse 15, ships and beautiful craft in verse 16. Look what I built. Look at how this protects me. Look how this fortress, this high wall, it insulates me. Nothing bad's going to happen from me. And we go, really? You think? You think that's the way this works? Verse 17, it comes at us again, right? The refrain, the haughtiness of man will be humble. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And what happens in this collision? Well, we're actually told what happens in this collision in verse 18. The reality is that the idols, which are just man-made things to begin with, they pass away. But I found verse 20 very interesting in this too. So it's not just that the idols pass away. It's actually that those of us who have constructed these things, we actually cast them away. We realize they promised this, but they don't deliver. They promised to give pleasure. They promised to give satisfaction. They promised to make me feel like I was somebody. They promised significance, but in the end, it doesn't matter. And, and verse 22 is exactly where we're supposed to go. He, he doesn't just mention the idols. He gets right to the source of the idols. And he tells us, stop regarding humans. I, I appreciate the translation here in the NIV. He says, stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why do you hold them in esteem? Let's face the facts. You and I are tempted to live in a world that we think we can build or other people have built. 
We could be tempted to be impressed by what we've done or what humans can do. And we're determined, we're determined to have our lives filled with what we can do and what we have. So we say, I will have that new toy. I will have that new house. I will have a certain resume. I will have my LinkedIn profile look a certain way. My education, my achievements will mean something. I will be in control. I will have the perfect family. They will do what I tell them to do when I tell them to do it. I will get what I want. I will have a certain look. I will have a certain body. People will admire me. And even if they don't, they will respect me. They will notice me. I will be top of my class. I'll be the lead performer. Nothing will stop me. Nothing will detract. But we can say all that. But we're human. All you have to do is inhale and exhale and know, should Jesus not come back, there's going to be a moment where you have breathed your last breath. Some of us have been in the room where people have breathed their last breath in our presence. Life's so fragile. So do you really think in that moment we're going to control and hold on to everything we can? There's no guarantee that we could. Yeah, this passage just has a way of bringing us low, but I want you to hear clearly what God intends by us hearing this message. And what if we what comes next? So if we have been brought low, if maybe you have been diagnosing, self-diagnosing some things in your own art where, yeah, you've kind of constructed this alternate tower instead of the mountain of the Lord, what, what, what comes next? Is God just all about steamrolling and obliterating you so that you just become some mindless, joyless robot? Is, is, that, is that what God's doing? That, that's actually not the picture in this passage. We're not less of a person because we've submitted to God, actually, when we're humble, when we're brought low, God begins to work. I wonder, maybe you've had the spiritual equivalent or the emotional equivalent that I had on the trail this week. Or frankly, there was nothing pretty about your wipeout, where life has taken you. And maybe you looked around and no one saw it, but you knew it. Or maybe actually what's made it painful is lots of people saw. What comes next after you've been made low? Or maybe you go, Curtis, I, I have sensed like my heart defecting a little bit from the Lord. And I don't want him to have to humble me. I'd rather humble myself under God's hand. I've sensed I, my obedience to him has been spotty. I've sensed my devotion to him. It's like I've tried to do the God plus thing. God plus all these what do I do? Something needs to change. You know what scripture does all over the place? I don't even have time to go into every reference that I found. But scripture has a word for us who have been brought low. He has a word, God has a word to us who have been humbled. Even at the end of this book, so the very end of this book in Isaiah 66, this is what the Lord has to say. From God's perspective, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. You're going to build me a house? The place of my rest? All these things my hands made already. All these things came to be through me. But notice, this is the one to whom I will look. Do you want the Lord's attention after you've been wiped out and just kind of been steamrolled by life? You have God's attention. This is where I'm going to look, the one who is humble, 
contrite in spirit, one who trembles at my word. First Peter says it another way in First Peter 5, verse 5, God resists the proud, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 25 says it this way, he leads the humble in what is right, he teaches the humble his way. Mary says it this way in, in Luke chapter 1, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones, but he's exalted those who are humble. Matthew 23, Jesus, our Lord, says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What does that mean? What does that mean when we find ourselves in the place of, yeah, I've been pretty much brought low? Well, it means we are in a position to receive God's grace, his favor. What do I mean by that? You see, we started this morning talking about this towering vision of the mountain of the Lord the mountain of the house of the Lord above every other mountain. The stream of people that are going up the mountain to be with God, to be in his presence, to have a close walk with him. The rest of Isaiah actually fills out that picture a little bit more. Because we are told about God in a towering mountain. But the rest of Isaiah says he looks on the lowly. He cares about those who have been brought low. And he looks at us in that position and he loves us. We might say, how marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. That he sees us not at our best, but at our, at our absolute worst. Not when we're all cleaned up, but when we've just made a royal wreck. And it's almost as if the picture that I had in my mind is Jesus comes down that mountain. We're never going to be able to climb up to that mountain where God is. And Jesus comes down and joins the humble, joins the ones who have been brought low. And in the midst of that, these are the words of Jesus, come and follow me. Come, follow me. I'll take you up the mountain. I'll take you to a restored relationship with God. Come, follow me. That's what he says to the lowly. That's what he says to the humble. Come and follow me and we say, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know the way. And that's where Jesus would tell us, I am the way. And then the rest of the Bible unpacks this picture of he is leading us. He is taking us. He says, come follow me. He says, I am the way. And when Jesus comes to this earth in the flesh and lives a perfect life for us, it is telling us he is the way. He is the way to the house of the Lord. When Jesus dies a death in our place and that justifies sinners, that justifies sinners like you and I. It declares us righteous. He's saying by his death, I am the way. When he defeats every enemy we could ever have, he is saying, I am the way. When he rises from the dead and brings life out of death, he is saying, I am the way. And we follow him and we put our trust in him and we find ourselves like, Lord, I just want to be fully devoted to you. I want to love you with all my heart, my soul, my strength, and my mind. And we become part of that multinational stream that's headed up this mountain. Many nations, many peoples, much like, it's kind of like our worship service where there's just multinationalities, multi-ethnicities, 
gathering together saying, we will sing of our Savior's love for us. We will follow his way. We will listen to him. We will go up to the presence of God. And frankly, this isn't just like a one-time decision you're going to make to humble yourself. This is actually going to be the life of a Christian. It's going to be constantly needing to humble ourselves before God. Constantly needing to be brought low before the Lord. A life of humility where you have the right assessment of who God is and who I am. Where you realize how much you need Him, not just for the hard stuff, but for everything. This is humbling ourselves, realizing a greater and quicker awareness of where I turn to other things instead of him for my refuge and my protection and my help and my comfort and my peace and my escape. It's a confidence that his love for me is enough, period. I don't need anything else because he means so much to me. I don't have to trust in anything else. Can you, can you see this towering vision? Isaiah wants you to have it. This mountain of the Lord are you going in a different direction today? Are you headed for this inescapable collision? What I prayed is that God would do a deep work of humbling 100% of us this morning. That all pride would be brought low so that we would see Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. The last song we're going to sing in a few moments is an invitation. It's, it's to come, come to the, an altar, which is really a place of sacrifice. It's a place where we say, here, Lord, it's, it's yours. I want to lead us in a prayer before we sing. Oh, Father, we thank you for invitations that you still give to sinners who are wiped out. Uh, Lord, I pray your grace in this moment would be very, very real pray your scripture would lean on us and we would trust you more deeply than we ever have, that we'd be more devoted to you, that we would see our own tendency toward idols or finding security in other things, that we'd find that, we'd see it quicker. And Lord, we, we pray that you would receive us with open arms today, that all of our hope would be in you. We ask this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.